What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And so do you open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, it can be found on page 345 of the Blue Colored Pew Bibles in the racks in front of you. I know the bulletin says uh, the whole chapter, but we're going to be going up to, up through verse 13. It was just too big of a chunk, too much richness, I had to... Cut it short, we'll, we'll pick it up next week in verse 14. But here, are, here we are, Nehemiah 5, 1 to 13. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what, are you, do- what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, and olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out this house and possessions 
Every man who does not keep this promise, so may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, God, that you would make us a more generous people. That in our generosity, we would even image the God of heaven, you, God, to a watching world. And that you would receive great praise, honor, and glory as we obey the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a wonderful plan that didn't turn out so wonderful? Was it a vacation from work? Did you score tickets to the Pats game at Gillette? Or was it just a getaway for the night? How about dinner out? You have everything planned. The reservations are made to your favorite restaurant, Capitol Grill, with your best friend. The night before, you looked at the menu, you picked out what you're going to buy, what you're going to get, your favorite appetizer, calamari, of course. The bread is awesome there. The rolls are always warm. The olive oil will flow. The butter has a little honey taste to it. You love it. You pick out your steak, a ribeye, medium rare, with creme brulee, so that you finish in glory. Folks, I know this is not what many of you would pick. Just dream with me. And so you arrive. Your time comes. But you arrive 20 minutes late because 93 is deadlocked. There is a a wreck on Starro Drive. And so you sit in your car. And your best friend cancels on you on your way in. And while sitting in traffic and looking at your Facebook, which you shouldn't do, You see a picture of them tagged. They're at the top of the hub with some other friend. You've been ditched. And so you eat alone, but the calamari isn't just the rings like you like. It's got the tentacles, and so you're grossed out, and you don't eat anything. They're out of the honey butter, and the rolls are cold and hard. The steak, instead of medium rare, is burned to a crisp. It's extra well done. Not even any blood, no, no pink like you like it. And they ran out of creme brulee, which is your only attempt to comfort yourself in this dream of a night turned nightmare. First world problems, right? You agree? Maybe you should have just gone to Chick-fil-A. How do you screw up a chicken sandwich? Many of us couldn't afford a night out at the Capitol Grill Maybe that'll come around maybe once every five to ten years for some of us. Some of us maybe have never even been to an expensive restaurant in our lives, but that doesn't really matter. Pick your favorite meal. 
your favorite vacation spot, your favorite person, job, lifestyle, spouse, you name it, and I am willing to bet that they will not deliver all that you had hoped and dreamed they would. Fair to say? Fair to say? Each, to some degree, will disappoint. We all dream. We all imagine. Our minds strive with great intensity to picture what our experiences will be, but they never quite turn out like we imagined them to turn out. Isn't it true? We form expectations of of how things should be, and often without realizing it, we begin to long for things. We long for the upcoming vacation. We long for the concert. We long for the career. We long for for the marriage even the religious experiences, and we long for them with expectations that surpass reality. C.S. Lewis gives us a little insight into our problem. He wrote this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I wondered if you've ever considered that all of our striving, if it be for this world which is passing away, will only produce for us more crushed hopes, more frustration, more unfulfilled longings. Even if we get what we wanted, we get it for a moment, this piece of perfection, and then it fades away as soon as we get our hands on it. Our experiences confirm it, and so does God's Word. But here's the thing. It's, it's also God's Word that offers us the only answer that can satisfy all of these deep longings in our hearts and in our souls. And the answer is God Himself. I wonder this morning, in what or in whom are you investing? Whatever you answer, that's what you're living for. And I wonder, is it God? His kingdom and his people, or is it the shiny apples of this world that more often than not turn out to be rotten on the inside? What are we living for? Well, we learned this morning that living for God is often costly, but it's the only way to live that will bring lasting treasure. And so so where do we find ourselves this morning in Nehemiah's story? Well, if you've been following along, we enter into this passage where Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, he's been, as as an incredible answer to prayer, he's been sent back to, to aid and lead his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem in rebuilding these walls that were in shambles. The walls were, were torn down in rubble, and the gates were 
ashes from the fire that burned them up. Suddenly, Nehemiah finds himself in a, in a particularly new place, in a place of leadership, and not only is he trying to do a great thing for God, but opposition, as it always comes to a work of God, rises up in the form of Sanballat, in the form of Tobiah, in the form of the Sumerian army, in the form of Jeshun, the king of the Arabs, and they all want to surround Jerusalem and destroy the work of God, but Nehemiah is leading his people. He teaches them not only to trust God, but to be vigilant. And so that image from last week about uh, the workers on the wall, in one hand a mason tool, in the other hand a sword. Trust God and be prepared. We said as... uh, Cromwell said, trust God and keep your powder dry. But we come this time, on this day, where this, this outside threat of these foreign nations that would, that would come and invade and kill God's people, they, they seem to have been held off. And things seem to be okay from the outside, but something on the inside is desperately wrong. And I think the passage, if we package it, we can sum it up this way, a command, and it's a command so profound that if we obey it this morning, Tremont Temple Baptist Church, we and this church will be transformed. And I believe that command is this, love others generously. Love others generously. If you're taking notes, that's what this sermon is all about. Things in Jerusalem were very exciting in this time. We are about one month into the building project. The wall is being rebuilt. The project would take roughly 52 days, like two months, a little less. The inhabitants of Jerusalem have been assaulted from without, but have prevailed But trouble is brewing within. We see that there is a great outcry in the opening verse of both men and their wives. You know, in war times, the camera is usually pointed at the soldiers. Their suffering is spoken of and reflected on by the media in the present. And then as decades and In centuries past, it's recorded in the history books. But far fewer are the accounts of the sufferings of the wives and children left behind in the fields of grain as they struggle even for food. Their kind of suffering is the mundane kind, not the kind for exciting books, but it is suffering nonetheless, the financial burdens. The readjustment of the home as as mom struggles to step not only in her role as mom, but also in dad's role. It has often been just as valiant a struggle for survival for the, the mother, for the wife, for the child left behind by the soldiers as they go to fight. And in a real sense, in this passage, fighting they were. These men of Jerusalem are are night and day 
working double and triple shifts on the wall, ever vigilant. Their eyes are scanning the countryside. They're looking for an ambush. As they're building, they have to keep looking back to see if, if Sanballat or the Sumerian army are going to come and, and come and invade. And, and it's, it's exhausting. They are, they are invested, and there's not much else that they can do. In fact, if you look back at the end of the last chapter, Nehemiah says that the workers on the wall didn't even change their clothes. They didn't have time. That's the last verse of chapter 4. I wonder if you ever pulled an all-night shift. Raise your hand if you ever worked overnights. I've worked my share of overnights. And I invited the suffering because after my 12 to 8 shift, I would slap on a detail. I would stand out there and do this. Don't hate me for it. (laughs) So I wouldn't go to bed until like noon. I had been up since the night before. And I want to tell you that I wasn't really that concerned about how fresh my t-shirt was. You know, these guys are run ragged in the work of God. And their wives and some of the people at home were suffering for it. I love what one commentator says about the priority given to the work on the walls. You know, obviously, this this type of thing in, in in the marriages of sinners would create some strife. Right? And this commentator says this, uh, they may have begged their husbands to return home, saying in frustration, after all, you can't eat walls. That's what they were building. Well, that is true, but on the other hand, you can't eat anything if you're dead from a Sumerian invasion, either. They were stuck in a catch-22. If they stay working on the walls, their families suffer. But if they leave the work of the walls and go home, they could be invaded and killed. But this outcry, these complaints from these people are not lodged against the workers on the walls. They, They were lodged against wealthy men, power brokers in the community, nobles and officials who are taking advantage of the crisis bleeding them financially to fill their own coffers, seemingly offering them loans to buy food. They were charging exorbitant amounts of interest that was bleeding the bank accounts of these people to the point where they couldn't even afford a meal for their children. It would seem far worse than your MasterCard or Visa. Trust me. Though it's hard to believe. Lending money was a common practice in Israel. In Deuteronomy 23.30, it says there that an Israelite could charge a foreigner interest, but not among fellow Israelites. Lending is fine, but to lend to a brother Israelite and to collect off of his, his loan an extra amount was forbidden, especially in a time of vulnerability, but that didn't stop these men from exploiting their own people. We get a closer look at the complaints in verses 2 to 5. The complaints seem to be coming from three distinct groups of people. The first seems to be the poorer people who didn't own any land. The kind of people who are living paycheck to paycheck 
And they wouldn't have lived themselves inside the city of Jerusalem, but they would come. They joined onto the work because they believed that God was doing something. They wanted to visit and go to the temple. And so they signed on to the work project. But they started to run out of food. And so they began to take out loans. And they went the only place they knew they could into these nobles who charged them incredible amounts of interest. In verse 3, we have a different group, the landowners among the community, those with vineyards and properties. And, and, and what it says here is the complaint is that they began to have to mortgage their fields and their vineyards and their properties to have enough money to, to, to have grain to make bread and eat. Again, they go to these men, the only place they knew to find a loan, and they were charged crazy amounts of interest. And then there's the complaint about taxes in the next verse, in verse 4. King Artaxerxes, in fact, was famous for his taxation of all of those that lived under him. And anyone who owned land had to pony up serious, heavy taxes, Jerusalem included, and they were struggling to pay it. And so more mortgaging, more loans at high interest. And the last is maybe the most desperate situation Many were forced to, to give their children in a, a sort of temporary debt slavery to these more wealthy Jews to pay back the loans. This kind of servitude was permitted in the Old Testament, but it was temporary. It wasn't to be used to exploit. It was a way to pay back when you owed but this was in a time of war. This was clearly a picture of an adv- the advantage taking, taking advantage of the disadvantage. The haves and the have-nots. Exploitation. I'll tell you, this world, in this world, this is nothing new. You know? Inequality. The rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, people getting rich off of war. That's happening today. And it's all very personal for those who are being exploited. Look at verse 5. It says this, Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, we have we yet yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Well that kids are no better than mine. Why are my kids going to go to slave, go be slaves while your kids get the silver spoon? All because you want to charge me extra. This is the kind of thing that's deeply personal. Well, Nehemiah, when he hears about this, he becomes, quote, very angry. He's furious. The dam of all of this seems to have broken suddenly. Some of us maybe were wondering, Nehemiah, where you been? You didn't see this? All of a sudden, you're, you're surprised by, by all this exploitation that's happening in the community? Well, friends, a lot of these were probably backdoor deals. The borrowers, probably out of their pride, didn't want anyone to know that they were borrowing. The, obviously, the lenders didn't want anyone to know that they were charging such high fees, or any fees at all. Nehemiah was busy leading the work at the wall and somehow it got past him. But he finds out all of a sudden, like a powder keg, he gets angry. Injustice! 
among God's people. This is something that should never be. These are supposed to be the holy people. The people who tell the world who God is, who Yahweh is. And you have wolves among the sheep taking from the sheep. This cannot go on. But what does Nehemiah do? The first thing he does, he shuts his trap. All of us need to learn, as the Proverbs say, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. You know, that goes for emails too. (laughs) You should probably sleep on it. If you have a piece of your mind that you want to give somebody else, maybe in this church or anywhere else. A lot of times you'll see you wake up and you'll realize those words are out of anger. You know that the New Testament says, be angry but do not sin. There's a right way to be angry. I wonder if you ever get angry. You should. That injustice. Even your own sin. Nehemiah, before he does anything, he ponders in his mind. He he takes counsel with himself. He, He meditates and thinks about what his response is going to be. He weighs his response. And then... He brings his accusations directly. This is a man who's well thought out, and this is a man with a backbone. Someone for us to emulate. Calculated, yet he does what needs to be done. Both of these things are important and useful. He even does it with a bit of irony, he does it with style. In verse 8, he says this, As far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers and for them to be sold back to us. He's using irony. He's saying, our people were sold to slavery in Persia. We finally bought them back and now you're selling them again. It's got a tinge of irony. They were treating their own people like chattel slaves for profit using them for their own gain in a time of crisis. And, and, and the most important thing, the, the thing that's even more important than each individual matter that's here, each occasion of suffering, which is, which is important to God, is that if you pull the camera back a little bit, what's really at stake here is that if this injustice and, and this disunity continues within the community, the entire work that they're setting out to do to build the walls of Jerusalem will come crashing down. They will fail. My dear friends at Tremont Temple, do you know what the greatest threat against the life of this church that it isn't secular atheists. You know, it isn't an attack on our religious freedom or even the nihilistic culture that surrounds us that tries to tear God out of everything. The greatest threat among us in this church and to any spiritual work is not what lies on the outside, but the threat of disunity on the inside. 
It was Abraham Lincoln who once spoke in this very place. I'm not going to quote the house divided. You probably thought I was. There's something else. There's a different part of a speech. I just think it's so pertinent to what is happening in our story. He says this in a speech in Illinois. From whence shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall some transatlantic military giant step the earth and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe and Asia could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River and make a track on the Blue Ridge in the trial of a thousand years. No, if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we will live forever or die by suicide. It would seem that he was looking forward to a day coming very soon where the United States would engage in a civil war that would kill more than 600,000 soldiers and many more in the collateral damage. It was on a large scale, in a very real sense, a suicide. And do you know, brothers and sisters, that most churches, if they die off, it's in a, in a very real sense, a suicide. Bad theology, poisoning the life of the church from within, splits over trivial matters, fracturing God's people from every side and spider-webbing out. Disunity driven by selfishness, draining the church of any semblance of joy, creating an environment that's about as vibrant as a cemetery. You say, Pastor, but what does Nehemiah 5 have to do with me? I'm not a loan shark. I've never charged anybody with interest in the church. But my friend, the devil, who the Bible says prowls around like a roaring lion, is often as quiet and crafty as a fox. His plans to d- divide us from the inside, it, it's often very subtle. Tempting us to approach the work of God with the attitude, though we wouldn't say it this way, what can I get out of it? Many of us, we have our own ambitions for the church. We bring our own great expectations and we're not happy unless they're fulfilled. We're not happy unless the steak is medium rare. Unless the bread is warm and fresh. We want it our way. And this attitude, and it's, it's even in me, the tendency, this attitude affects how we treat each other in many, many, many ways. We are tempted to withhold from the church what God is calling us to give. You know, it takes many forms. Our time is one of the most precious commodities that we have. For some of us, it's harder to get on the phone with you than the President of the United States. (laughs) Trust me. We screen calls. We don't answer. We're not available. 
This kind of attitude of personal gain, it causes us to withhold our finances from the church sometimes, some of us. You know, maybe you've heard about some of the former members of this church. They've given generously, and, and we even still benefit from this to a degree. And maybe you're tempted to rest on your laurels in giving to the Lord because you think we have this huge thing of money. But God is calling us all to give sacrificially. We need it. We need it to send missionaries. We need it for the Benevolence Fund when somebody really is in need among us to help them, to give them money. We need this. When we withhold our finances and we don't give cheerfully to the work, we're not living for Jesus. We're living for ourselves. This is convicting. It's convicting for me. But we need to be challenged. Maybe somebody here You know you've treated somebody else here wrongly for your own gain, whatever that may have been. Could have been anything. I wonder, is that you? I want to encourage you to think about life together in this church in a completely different way. Philippians 2.3, this could be the life verse of our church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Friends, if that was the atmosphere of our church, if that's what everyone came here with that attitude, this would be an incredibly different place. For those of you who are operating in this attitude, I thank you. There are some here that are, and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. I'm just warning us against it. It happens everywhere. Ask God for a heart of generosity. The giving of your time, of your finances, of everything that you have for those less fortunate among us. Well, the final verse is Nehemiah brings these nobles and landowners to the woodshed out of love for the community. And I believe even out of love for them, he confronts them in our final verses. He tells these nobles that they're wrong and asks them directly, do you fear God? must have been a tense moment. You know, God calls all of us to play this role sometimes in the life of our friends, in the life of this church. Not to wield a hammer, but out of love. To look somebody in the eye and say, I don't think that's right. And some of us, he's calling to receive that counsel. And that's good. David in the Psalm, Psalm 141 said, let my head not deny the blow from even my brother. It's oil for my head. It makes me a better man. This kind of stuff, by God's grace, will happen in the life of our church where we bring God's word to bear in each other's lives. Not out of gossip and not to slander and not to pull one over, but because we love one another. Nehemiah says, no more usury. Give all the properties back. Give all the money back. And they say they will, but he's not satisfied, so he makes them go before the priests and and say an oath before the priests. And with that, he's he's not satisfied even then. And so he does a gesture something reflective of the Old Testament prophets. 
he shakes out his garment, his robe, and he says this, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. This is sort of what we call an imprecatory gesture. It's a sign of judgment. Not that they're all to be judged, but that if they have just lied and they are going to go ahead and continue to hinder God's work and continue to overcharge their brothers, let them be removed from the fellowship. This is serious stuff. Well, they all agree. By God's grace, they agree and say amen. And by God's grace, they all kept the promise. It says that in the last verse. I wonder if any of us have some soul searching to do this morning. We hear God's word. And we ask ourselves, why am I really here? Is it for what I can get out of church? Or am I here to serve others? And in doing so, serve God. And if there's any selfish ambition among us this morning, I pray that you would be like these men, that I would be like these men, and repent and turn today to serving God and not myself. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We all, we all stood up and said that together. What a beautiful picture. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, the second member of the Trinity, in eternity, with the Father and the Spirit. No need to come out of that warm fellowship. Owner of everything, rich beyond measure, who came into the world as Jesus Christ. He looked down, he saw a broken, sinful humanity. And he became poor for our sakes, took upon flesh, was born in a trough, lived a life of a homeless man, going from place to place, preaching the truth, living a sinless life. And then the God-man, when the time came, did not act out of his own initiative for himself, but gave his life on the cross for us. He didn't show up saying, what can I do for me in my little trip into the world? But he said, what can I give for these people so that they might become rich? How can I lift them up? And God took upon himself all the rottenness and the greed and the selfish ambition and the sins of the world. He took them and put them on himself. And then God from heaven the Father rained down his wrath and hatred of sin on his only begotten son, Jesus, after paying the price, died. And then three days later rose from the dead. And my friend... If you don't know Christ, if you have never trusted in him, turn from your sins this morning, turn from ambitions that are ungodly, turn from a life lived for self, and turn to Jesus Christ by faith, and you will receive eternal life. Life abundant. It may be costly. Costly. To live for Jesus. 
but it's worth it. You know? If we live like this, with great generosity, it'll, it'll show God to the world. When we serve others in this way, there's something, for, there's something in it for us too. In serving God by serving his people, there is a greater and lasting satisfaction than any night out, any dinner, any vacation, any creme brulee could ever give you. It's the satisfaction of knowing that God is pleased with your life. That he's pleased with the way that you're serving and loving his people. Friends, as a church, as we seek to build, as we seek to grow and, and, to, and to grow in our depth of spirituality and even to invite other worshipers to join us, to fill this room, might it be said of this church that we are a people who are generous, that we are a people who love and serve others even at the expense of ourselves. That's what Jesus did. Let's do that. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father...